Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, Pete Wadgen here. So this is probably our most ambitious podcast series yet. Why? Because everyone in investing has an opinion and an interpretation of Warren Buffett and his investment style. If you Google Uncle Warren, you'll get 72 million results and there's no doubt that he's the king of investing. What we want to do is determine if we can distill Buffett's 80-odd years of investing into a podcast mini-series that can help you as an investor. So we'll list a few Buffettisms and we'll dissect each one in a little detail to try and extract the wisdom, what lessons can we learn, which are the important lessons. And what we can see is that many of them are on the same topics and expresses the same point in different ways. And we'll finish this series with the ultimate question, is Warren Buffett unique and can we all be a little bit more like Buffett? So join us as we discuss the Buffett philosophy, his principles of investing and what we can learn and whether we can replicate his style to build your wealth. And after all, As Buffett himself said, your best investment is in yourself and there's nothing that compares to it. So join Steve Moriarty and myself as we dissect a few Buffettisms and see what we can glean from the master. Cheers. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Borgen. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve. How's your week been? Good, Pete. Good. Very, very wet. Yes, I, um, I noticed in uh, Sydney they've been having some horrendous downpours. That maybe not quite so bad in Brizzy. Yeah, it's 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 been wet for about three or four days, and it's got another couple to go. But I'm always a bit of a strong believer, as you know, in mean reversion. So it's been pretty dry, and the dams have been low, and they've been talking about water restrictions. Lo and behold, lots of rain, mean reversion, good as gold. That's what they say in the farming industry and in the farming community, isn't it? You had 10 years of wet, 10 years of dry. So yep. uh, nice little nice little lead-in, I suppose, to uh, yep. mean reversion. And uh, today we're going to talk about, it's the third episode on our Warren Buffett mini-series. And today we're going to talk a little bit about logic versus emotion and the old uh, classic being fearful when others are greedy. So I'll um, actually just on the the uh, the farming and outdoorsy theme, Steve. So as you know, this year I've had way too much downtime due to uh, various on and off lockdown. So one of the things I've taken up because there's nothing else to do is gardening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh mate, you've Mid- <laughs> middle age creeping in. So uh, yeah, I've been taking a great deal of time and energy uh, making the lawn look nice and uh, you know planting the spring bulbs and all of that stuff. And uh, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful time of year here, uh, nice blue skies and stuff. Anyway, um, the place where we live is, is relatively close to a local pub. And we've um, I, there's a couple of young kids, so there's a little group of them who finish up at the pub and they got into the habit of coming by and you know, one day they'd throw a few stones over at my car 
Another day they um, tip things over the fence, like litter and stuff, and they're just just generally doing the sort of things yep. uh, that young young boys do. And um, the, the latest thing has been coming by uh, after the pubs kick out, uh, they, and they lift up the fence panels. I said to uh, Heather, "I've got a, I keep my grey nickels cricket bat under the bed," and I'm like, "Well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Next time they lift the fence up, I'll go around and smash them with the uh, the grey nickels." And uh, of course, uh, <laughs> Heather's sort of saying, "Well, look, you can't just uh, go around battering people with a cricket bat uh, for <laughs> causing pranks." And don't forget, you were a young man not so long ago doing probably similar things. Uh, so I, I guess um, her point being that. Uh, uh, taking retribution for a bit of uh, minor uh, vandalism is probably an emotional reaction, not a logical one. And of course, during the the, uh, the cold light of day, I can see her point. But uh, yes, at midnight when people were uh, rattling my fence panel, I wasn't quite feeling it. So uh, logic versus emotion today, a key theme. So I guess that leads into efficient markets, because one of the things we know is that when, when stock markets fall, volatility suddenly goes through the roof. So there's some there's some very hard evidence there that markets may be rational some of the time, but certainly not all of the time. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the thing with the Buffett quote, you know, the be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful, is really sort of, you know, a play on logic and emotion, like you say. And if you think about efficient market theory, what it says is, if everybody has the same information and everybody is rational, which is, you know, one of the big points, because we know that people are not always rational. And so if that's the case, then the market won't always be rational. I side with Buffett. I think both of us do, you know, in the sense that saying, I don't think the market's really, really rational at any point in time. Part of that also too, just to bore you completely for another minute, is to get in with the equilibrium economics, you know, that there's there's a balance and I don't think the market really is ever in balance. That's why there's always buyers and sellers and the price is changing. So I think, um, and Buffett also himself has sort of derided the, the efficient market and has said, you know, sort of rather churlishly, oh, we should fund, you know, more uh, university chairs in efficient markets because that's how they make their money. So I think if, if you follow the, the sort of, you know, Buffett's dictum, you, you'll do all right. The hard part, of course, is, you know, buying when everybody else is selling and, you know, selling when everybody else is, is buying like crazy, which is sort of where we are at the moment. You know, like the market's going crazy and it's hard to sell, you know, because your portfolio's moving up, everything's looking really good, and it just seems really stupid to say, I've had a really great run and now I'm going to sell. It just doesn't sit well. Mentioned in episode two of this series about the the focus on, in fact, no, episode one, rule number one, <clears throat> not losing money. I guess what follows on from that in today's market is what Buffett has said, that you pay a high price for a cheery consensus. So I think if you think back to March and April in 2020, there was a lot of panic and there was, there was, a, there was very little liquidity in some stocks. But then as people perceive the risks to be lower over time, the consensus changes. And of course, now with a clearer outlook, you'll pay more for the stock, whether rightly or wrongly. So, um, and this is the, the the logic versus emotions chat. I think I mentioned on a previous chat we had about my my dad's job and he working as a, uh, he was a probation officer and he actually went all the way through the ranks to be the national head in the UK 
of that that part of the public sector. And a lot of um, what they do in that type of work is that people get released from prison after 10 or 20 years and they either go on to some form of community service or a period on probation. Uh, but you're not um, you're not dealing with um, it's not a statistically normal group of people that these are previous offenders and statistically some of them will reoffend and of course uh, this is why British law is always uh, sort of held that um, the, the punishment for crimes is, is set by an independent body it's not not the victim of the crime uh, perpetrated that gets to set the uh, set the uh, the punishment because otherwise nobody would ever be released from prison. In fact, they'd probably all get their heads chopped off. Um, so it, it, an incredibly difficult job, certainly compared to what we do in financial services, uh, because um, there's a lot of very emotional reactions to crimes that are committed. But in a uh, developed society, we tend to try to at least think about these things more logically. So um, yeah. this is one of um, Buffett's great strengths, understanding those the link between logic and emotions and how that all plays out in the stock market. And, and in particular, Buffett doesn't talk too much about price because he knows that the price ultimately will follow the value. Because of his deep knowledge in markets, he will find ways to exploit those opportunities. Because it, it's one of those things where he has this I mean, I sort of think it's an unshakable belief that, you know, price follows value. Um, And also, if you hark back to, you know, his mentor, Ben Graham, who said, you know, in the short run, it's a a voting machine and in the long run, it's a weighing machine. It's an interesting argument if you think about it, because the argument is, okay, if it's worth a dollar and Buffett gets it for, you know, 70 or 80 cents or any of us do, It'll, it'll eventually, you know, reach a dollar. In some ways it's understandable because you would say that that's a rational thing to do and that's the real value. But the other hand too might be, well, yeah, but if it shoots through a dollar and goes to a dollar fifty, is that the real value at that point? And so I, I often think it's more about mean reversion and things just being in and out of favour. But in terms of his price and value, I mean, it's pretty amazing to think that it's pretty hard to go to the stock market and not be emotional, even in the slightest. And if you think that he, for what, 80 odd years, he's just been this absolute faith in this one sort of thing about, you know, logic and emotion or that, you know, price follows value. He's used that to his advantage to be able to buy low, you know, the fearful, greedy, greedy, fearful sort of routine. But the 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 one thing I think differs, Pete, is that Buffett really focuses on companies. And so the market might be expensive, but what he buys is cheap. Personally, I'm I mean, I, I know, you know, we've done that in the last 12 months with oil. And I do that occasionally, but generally I prefer to say if I really want to make a high probability investment, I'm better off waiting until the whole market goes down. But with Buffett, I think, you know, if you think throughout his whole career, at the start it was cigar butts and, you know, net net sort of thing. Well, there was no market, um, there was no market timing sort of in that. You just bought it because it was cheap and then you flogged it off when it reached its value. And he still believes in that price value thing. And even now, because he's a different type of investor, but he still does that thing of 
buying Apple in 2000 and I think 13 or something because it was cheap, even though the market was, you know, a little on the expensive side. And so it's been a really, really steadfast point for him to ignore the market, but just buy things when they're cheap. So for essentially saying that he is a business analyst, not a stock market analyst or a stock analyst. And I think, um, so this, um, let's talk a little bit about the method that we use because um, the, the eight timeless principles, there was, um, there was your IP and your um, conception some years ago. Um, so the, the point about those eight timeless principles is there's, there's four thought principles yeah. and there are four action principles. So the, the thought principles obviously come first in determining your current situation, your personality, and um, yep. the various bits and pieces that you have to go through before pulling the trigger. And then there, there are the four action principles. The, the reason I found that to be so useful, and it, it ties back to this point on logic versus emotion, when, when markets are so uh, fast moving, as they can be, especially when they're moving down, um, it can be very, very difficult to know whether you're doing the right thing. And um you know, people are getting very stressed out about markets down 5% uh, one day and up 5% the next and all the rest of it. The great thing about having the eight timeless principles and just uh, building it into a coherent written strategy is that it just takes all of the emotion out of the equation. As you said, there will still be some residual emotion because we all like to make money and we all hate losing money. Uh, but just knowing that whatever happens to the market, you've got a strategy that you've already conceived, that, that you can deal with whatever happens. It becomes a lot more of a process and it's very systematic rather than being driven by emotion. So, And that's where things like, as you mentioned, the CAPE ratio can just help to determine the intrinsic value of the overall market and you can build a strategy around that. The, I sort of say to people the holy trinity is probably the three of them, which is market cycles, right? And the first one is saying, you know, with anything that you buy, where am I in the market cycle? You know, because no one wants to buy at the top of the market. Everyone wants to buy at the bottom of the market. The problem is at the bottom of the market, everything looks miserable. You know, so it, you sort of think, oh, yeah, I'd like to pay a cheap price. Yeah, but I don't want to feel awful about it. And it's like, well, if you don't want to feel awful about it, you've got to buy it at the, the midpoint or the, the top of the market, you know, if you want safety, um, you know, to travel with the crowd and not be a contrarian. The other two that are really important is asset allocation, um, rebalancing. And it really just those three, if you can, and like we do, you know, sort of say to people, look, you should look at ETFs because you can put your head on the pillow at night and, and sleep better with knowing that you're in a whole market rather than you've got this small cap value stock and, gee, you hope it comes off. So from that point of view, I think it becomes a lot easier to not worry about either holding a lot of cash or holding a lot of stock. If you if you really look at market cycles and take a lot of time to go through the stats, to look at, you know, the, the, the links with GDP, um, you know, the market goes down and GDP goes up or GDP goes down and the market goes up, all of these sorts of things. And when you get deep into it, it's really about valuation. And the brilliance of Buffett is he can pick the value of a company and then see its future value for 20 or 30 years, you know, with this durable competitive advantage stuff. And 
it's a lot bloody harder than it looks to do, you know, because like you say, you can buy a great company. I, I saw something just before we came on where a guy said, a guy saying on Twitter, you know, like, oh, you know, yeah, you can buy these great companies like Apple, but, you know, like year to date it's down 9%. And it's like, okay, so what? But, you know, there's someone who's thinking, oh, my God, it's down 10%, should I sell it? And it's like, really? I mean, you, you've got to be joking. You know, it depends on what your time frame is, of course. But it just seems to me that he's been an absolute master of understanding, as, as you said before, as a business analyst, to pick what what things are valuable and what's not valuable. So it's really, really, I mean, it's just something that is you can look at and just be in awe about. Yeah, so he doesn't talk an awful lot about market valuations these days. I mean, it, it occasionally does, I think it um, and in fact, we mentioned last week the Sun Valley speech in July '99. So I haven't run the numbers, but just looking at a graph here, it looks to me like from July '99, the market probably rose another um, what 25 or 30 percent before it finally crashed. But then from March 2000, uh, from from 3800 to 1300 by by 2002. Oh, so right. I suppose that yes, yeah, so I suppose that shows that. You can't time the market. Even the even the great man couldn't time the market down to the last uh, six or nine months. But he, I guess that's the point: is that he's not trying to. Yeah. Um, and it's really understanding the difference between speculation, which is, as you said, whether Apple share prices up or down uh, over the next three months, versus investment, which is understanding valuation and long term uh, value. So I think um, looking back through my notes, so uh, Buffett. Variously talked about euphoria, 1986, um, the lack of fear on Wall Street and saying how fear and greed run predictable. 94, Buffett said that fear is the foe of the faddist and the friend of the fundamentalist. That reminds me of the four Fs there. I can hardly, <laughs> hardly get it all out. The friend of the fundamentalist and the foe of the faddist. So he does um, from time to time make comments on irrational exuberance or uh, the state of the market. But okay, I guess these days Buffett is an elephant and therefore if he's managing tens of billions of dollars, he can't really make too many grand pronouncements on whether stocks are good or bad at any point in time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you, you know, if you're a net-net, if you're a net-net, you know, cigar butt investor and you're 35, um, you're not going to be a market mover. And my argument these days, and it has been for probably the last 20-odd years, is Buffett is uh, someone who can move markets, and so these days he's generally optimistic at generally at all times. Um, you know, the what's the, what does he say? And never buy. You know, ne- um, don't bet against America. You know, so um, he just he brings that one out every about every five years. But he also brings that one out when everybody's miserable. Um, and I think what he's the message is stick to the long term, and when you buy something you should buy it on the value. So in other words, he buys something and says, okay, this is my sort of projected return. I don't care if it goes down another 10% or another 20%. I don't care if it goes up 20% in a year because I know I'm getting this sort of infinite value, you know, because remember he said, I want stocks with a bond-like quality, i.e. because I'm going to hold them for a long time. And so he's gone through his career as you said, there's been instances where he's talked about the market at a at a at a high level, 
and a low level. You know, in 2008, November, he said, buy American, I am. Market bottomed in March 2009. He talked about it in 2000, you know, all those sorts of things. And so I think he's, you know, the, the only time I sort of parted company or disagreed with him was a few years ago when he said, um, the market's okay if interest rates stay low. That's his caveat, but I think it's a bit of a cop-out um, because, I, and I won't go into it too much, but about the equity risk premium um, and the idea of, well, if rates are low, companies are worth more. And it's like, well, yeah, that's okay if everything else is the same and rates are low because the economy is terrible. So companies can't be valued the same in a bad economy. Um, so I part ways with him there, but he he always comes back to the numbers. You know, it's really what tells him the value, where value is. And the only, the, the only other point I want to make is he says that he can make money quantitatively, you know, just by being sort of like a, a numbers guy. But he said the really big winners are where he's used qualitative assessments. The salad oil scandal with uh, Amex, um, where, you know, according to the numbers, it was cheap, but he made lots of money because he took that qualitative information and that's what really brought the big returns for him. So he, he's been really sort of clever that way. Yeah, so I remember there was a very good blog post you put together on uh, the concept of statistics over stories because as, as humans, we love the idea of a story, a narrative. You know, it's much easier for many of us to visualise a story rather than actually taking a bit of time to understand numbers. So back in uh, 99, Buffett basically said, well, look, GDP might grow 3%. So you've got a bit of corporate profit growth there. We might get 2% inflation and throw in a bit for dividends. So, uh, But if you look at that, the, the future returns are going to be terrible. And of course, there was you know 50% correction over three years. Now, I think um, it, it leads on to an interesting point because actually what a lot of uh, people might say for dollar cost averaging is, um, well, look, you know, from 2000 to 2020, nominal returns were sort of sort of okay. Like uh, they weren't good, uh, but they, they weren't absolutely catastrophic if you continue to drip feed into the market over that time. Again, I think Buffett made similar points in 2004 in the lead up to the financial crisis. You pay too much, the returns just won't be great. Uh, but then after the the crash, as he said, two thousand and eight nine, he was uh, this is this is the opportunity to take advantage of uh, the fear. So you, you pay a high price for cheery consensus and meaningless reassurance, as Buffett says. I think this is an interesting sort of side issue to discuss, and that is if you invest in stuff that is too expensive, then it's not it doesn't necessarily follow your that the market will crash or anything like that. But it, it certainly means you just won't get very good results. And this is what led me uh, towards buying a property last year. I just couldn't find anything that would excite me and uh, in the, in stocks, uh, certainly not to pull the trigger on a big investment. And uh, you know, I got a couple of gotcha emails from people saying, oh, look, the market's going up and stuff. It's like, well, no, like, that's the thing. You can't time stock markets down to the, the week or the month. And actually just on that statistics over stories point, it's just reminded me, friend of mine, uh, John Tepper from Variant Perception, wrote a book, I think, called Endgame at the end of the financial crisis. And I think his point was, you know, in a lower growth world, 
uh, people are they've got used to the idea of stocks delivering a ten percent or an eight or ten percent return because you know GDP and profits. And he said, well, look, we're going into a period of low growth now, so people need to adjust downwards their expectations now. Look at what the markets have done over the past 10 years. I mean, <laughs> 400% returns. But now people are getting bullish. And it's so, well, this just goes back to, to Buffett's point. You know, uh, I'm not saying that the market will crash tomorrow, but markets are way, way more expensive though than they were in 2009. And GDP growth, well, what? You know, uh, last year was negative. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah I think yeah. that. The um, a couple of you raised an interesting point last week. I saw Americans expected fifteen percent per annum going forward, right? And the other thing too is, which I, 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 you know, relentlessly bang on about. If you look at market cycles and valuation, valuation is the only thing that matters. And I, I know people are going to go, "Oh my god, that's ridiculous!" I can tell you, look at all the economics of 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 economic growth. Um, the reason why Jonathan Tepper got it wrong was because the valuation in 2009, the CAPE ratio was about 13 or 14, i.e. it was undervalued. Now, that's exactly the point that people go, oh, I'm not investing now because the economy's terrible. And it's Buffett's point in saying, well, now's the best time to invest because it's going to get better. And it brings me back to this point I always talk about, about this static view versus this dynamic view. You know, Buffett has this dynamic view. And what that means is you can't look at a thing now and invest because investing is about getting more back in the future. So what you want to say to yourself logically is, will the future be better? Yes. Okay. Well, it's probably a good time to invest. If it's really cheap and it's ugly and people are really fearful, that's when Buffett says, well, now's a great time to invest. And the opposite is is true where he says, you know, um, those who invest only when commentators are upbeat end up with paying a heavy price for a meaningless reassurance. And that's exactly the point we make. You cop flack from people more than I do because you've got more of a profile, <laughs> but who beat you up about, oh, you know, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you know, blah, blah, and the market's going up. But the thing is these are people who, A, have never been through a market cycle for a start, B, they don't really get this dynamic static approach because you only get to keep the money if you sell. And if you're a trader and you make money that way, I don't have any problem with that at all. But a lot of the time people get confused and they're doing it now by saying, oh, Buffett's finished, you know, he's had a shitty 10 years. And you look back and go, mate, he's been killing it for about 40 or 50 years. Why would you care if you had a bad 10 years? You know, he's richer than God. I mean, you know, I'd go with him over any Bitcoin or any day of the week. It just seems to be really sort of immature view to say, oh, you're not outperforming in the last 12 months. And then sort of say to people, oh, well, that means you're no good. I mean, everybody from Soros, you know, uh, Druckenmiller, Buffett, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, everybody has periods of out of outperformance and underperformance. But the outperformance guys are really the guys, like you said before, that have a system that's generally based on solid numbers, 
rather than, you know, this continuous media feeding stories that go on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, the, the, the famous uh, Buffett indicator was based on market cap to GDP, and that's that's looking like it's going to be at record highs this yep. year. Now, Buffett's been around for 80-odd years, as you said, so he, he's not going to worry too much about the ups and downs of the market because he's been doing it for so long. But let's bring it back and wrap up with a some takeaway points for the rest of us, the mere mortals, because I suppose at, at the end of the day, you can't invest in everything. So what you've got to do is make the best assessment at any given point in time. And as you said, with stocks, it's exactly the same in every asset class. Um, you could have bought properties, relatively speaking, a lot cheaper in uh, April or May 2020 than you can now for the same reasons, because the market outlook was uncertain. So what does it take to be fearful when others are greedy and vice versa. So I suppose first thing is is quite clear there, then if you do what everyone else does, then it's very difficult to get an outperformance. So you've got to have some kind of fortitude to be contrarian. Um, I, th- I think you used a quote in one of our very early podcasts about uh, Buffett uh, when asked who influences him. He said, well, I, I get up in the morning and have a shave and the guy in the mirror has his say and, that, and that's it. Nobody else gets to have a say so he said it in a more catchy way than that yeah, but, how uh, do we friends and influence people <laughs> and i think uh, i mean one thing's one of the things i've learned over the years is you've got to learn to think for yourself because yeah. I, i've seen this over and over is that uh, you know people come along they read a couple of books and then they tell you well this is how it works yeah. or you know if you make a point they'll go away google a, a contrarian point and uh They'll list you the same bullet points that they found on Google, which is all fine. It's all research. But I think reading very widely and learning to think for yourself is key. But tell us a bit about the the Kelly approach to investing, Uh, because I suppose if you're going to be uh, contrarian and fearful when others are greedy, you've got to have some kind of a framework for doing that. And that's where our eight timeless principles and the Kelly criterion come in. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just on your point about books and stuff. I remember every time I read an investment book for probably the first five years, I would always put it down and go, yeah, yeah, that's what I am. (laughs) I need to be a technical trader, you know, and then I'd read a book on Buffett and go, yeah, yeah, that's what I need to be. I need to be a long-term compounder. And it it really takes, you know, look, some people might reach it earlier than I, I did, but it really took 10 years for me to actually go, righto, now I really know what I'm doing and I and I've got something that suits my personality type where it makes complete sense it's really inst- easy to institute I'm really confident in it it's got evidence you know all of that stuff we talk about in our eight principles and one of them probably the most eye opening one was the kelly stuff because it just when i read it it was like i mean buffett said you know with value investing he said oh you find that people either get it or they don't. And I, I got to say, that's really the same, I think, a little bit with the Kelly criterion. Most people are thinking in the efficient market sort of idea, whereas once you read, I think anyway, you read Kelly, it makes absolute sense. The most successful investors like Buffett, Ed Thorpe, uh, Jim Simons, all use Kelly. Uh, I think it was Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio, I think, uses it. You know, so that's where the Kelly type investments of if you've got an advantage, then you should bet big. You know, Buffett's reach for a bucket, not a thimble. And that comes back to that thing about saying, well, 
if our advantage is, in a sense, the Cape ratio, or we have these principles that work, then when the market crashes, we put lots of money to work. What that requires is, like you said at the start, being contrarian, and the other one is patience. And that's where Buffett's been really, really successful by being a contrarian, but also having this enormous patience. And so he's managed to combine those and stick with them for, you know, like 80 odd years. I think we're going to talk about, you know, can you be Warren Buffett at the end of our series? But it's, I don't think you can be, but what you can do is say, all right, well, how do I be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful? I'll look at the indicators that work and CAPE has a good correlation. Now, as you said, you're not going to do it to the day, but, you know, if you're a sensible person, you're going to realise that anyway. And so I think for the beginners or intermediate investors, the CAPE is a really good way of saying, well, now the market's really cheap, I should put a lot of money in, I'll peel the money off, i.e. I'll rebalance as it rises. And so at the top of the market, you shouldn't have a lot of money in the market. Now, you will have some because it's a, a residual of your portfolio. But what you do then is when the market does crash, you you see that the system worked. And then that's how that reinforces itself. And so Buffett's been Buffett has always been reinforced by this, well, I just keep making more and more money, and so it works, you know, over 50 or 60 years. Yeah, so there's a few things there. One is take our Enneagram assessment because, as Steve rightly pointed out, there are nine different personality types, so what works for one person may not be the right approach for another, uh, and this is where our eight timeless principles come come in because it can help you to build a a systematic approach that suits you. And one of the things I've noticed over the years is that when somebody has reached a point of investment or investing nirvana, they don't really care that much about what everyone else says. But you try going online and criticizing somebody who's investing in the latest tech stock or the latest uh, coin float or whatever, you'll get a furious response from people because they don't deep down actually have any confidence in the approach. It's very much based on what's happening to the price today or tomorrow. But you'll find that the most experienced investors don't really care that much what other people think because they've learned to think for themselves and actually just worked out what works best for them and they'll have a level of confidence in that. So, Steve, I'm conscious of the time and I think I need to go back to uh, policing the perimeter fence of my property with the grey nickels. So I shall let you get on with your wet uh, Brisbane weekend. And uh, thanks for joining, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Pete. See you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.